Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Sunday Forum at St. Luke's Episcopal Church, downtown Atlanta. I am so thrilled you're with us, and I am so thrilled to introduce uh, our conversation partners for today. You are in for an amazing, uh, illuminating epiphany about one of the most important things we could talk about, and that is hate as an addiction and turning our country around from its polarized divisiveness into a community of humanity. Well, I'm getting ahead of the game. Let me tell you that we're going to be talking with Chris and Melissa Buckley, whose story is just amazing. And uh, we'll hear from Chris and Melissa about Chris's journey from being a leader of the Ku Klux Klan and his addiction to hatred and white supremacy to this amazing life we'll talk about. And also, we're going to be talking with two documentarians who are telling the story or helping to tell the story of uh, the Buckleys, uh, Den Blankenship and Aaron Bernhardt, two uh, really wonderful friends. So before we get into everything, let me just greet each one of these people so they can say hello so that you can begin to get to know these folks. So first... Chris and Melissa Buckley, welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you very much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, St. Luke, for, you know, inviting us into your, your serving. And, uh, you know, anytime we get to sit down and help people understand what's going on and, and what they might be able to do or a better grasp on how to handle it is a blessing for, for our family. So Great. Welcome, Melissa. Great to have you, too. Thank you, sir. Thank you guys for having us. Oh, we're thrilled to have you. And then um, Aaron Bernhardt, uh, let's say hello to you. Hello, my friend. Hi, how are you? I'm great. Uh, grew up uh, Jewish in Savannah. Atlanta. And, and Atlanta. And, um, but didn't your family help found the first temple or synagogue in Savannah? So yep. I got it right. And yep. the AA here in Atlanta. And also in Atlanta. And then Den Blankenship, who is also a documentarian. Um, and uh, is an architect, right, by training uh, from uh, University of Virginia and University of Michigan, right? Yeah, your classic architecture to filmmaking uh, career. <laughs> <laughs> there are so many of us. <laughs> so Den and Aaron are uh, storytellers extraordinaire, and they're going to help me uh, tell the story with Chris and Melissa. So welcome to all four of you. Let's get at it. So Chris, let's start with you, my friend, and Melissa, because I hear that Melissa is really the hero of this story. But as I understand it, what happened, Chris, is you were in a place in your mind and heart and body where you were absolutely consumed by hatred, white supremacy, violence, and Melissa called in some troops that she just kind of reached out for and those people helped over the years it was not instant over the years you really have done a 180 so chris and melissa will you just kind of tell the story um yeah i, I guess i'll kind of set the scene for you know how the situation happened um you know i grew up in a, a pretty I like to refer to him as closet racist, right? My family was very polite, courteous out in public, but at home there was a lot of really hateful rhetoric and speech and just, you know, slurs. You know, my dad was pretty, you know, vicious with his discipline, wrenches, cords. Um, also, you know, some molestation issues by a same-sex family member, um, you know, and all those traumas just kind of set in. But as a kid, you know, you you just kind of adapt and and you know callous to things and you you overcome them you know and that's one of the things that I'm just so thankful for about children is they're very very resilient um you know and 
you know, that went on and I just kind of stuffed it down into a place inside of me where, you know, it just lived there for a really long time. Um, and from that moment on, like, I guess it was like a natural defense mechanism to just like hate homosexuality, you know, because I looked at every homosexual as the one that harmed me. And it was natural defense for me to, to, to attack or, you know, to separate or to belittle them. Uh, and that was really my first experience with what hatred was. You know what I mean? Uh, I grew up in the 90s during the Busing Reform Act in Cleveland, Ohio. So they took a handful of kids from the West Side, shipped them to the White Side and vice versa. And, you know, I experienced racism directed at me. Um, and it kind of was like the first forms of confirmation bias that I had about what my parents would tell me at home, you know, because I had friends of every shape, color, size, creed, religion, you know, and when that happened and I started to experience the bus, the, the racism from the busing. And, you know, I remember my grandmother saved up for a long time and bought me a really expensive pair of shoes on a fixed income. And it was the first new pair of like name brand shoes that I ever had. And they were taken from me the first day of school, you know what I mean? And, and it was, it was a really bad situation. So, you know, fast forward, my, pa my dad comes home one day and he's like, you're going to end up in jail or prison or doing drugs. So he moves us to Southern Ohio where you guessed it, everybody looked, walked and act like me. So I fit in really well. I was really easy to transition into that crowd. I, I had friends popular, not popular, uh, ran track and played baseball. Um, and, you know, I really just got along with everybody. Um, and I just decided that I was going to join the army. You know, that was where my, my life took me. And, you know, from that point, uh, it was right around 9-11. Um, you know, I, I was, I had been to basic training and was, you know, done with AIT and 9-11 happens, you know. Um, and I remember, you know, I got shipped overseas and, you know, I, we had started the whole desensitization in the military. You know, we don't refer to them as Afghan and Afghan local nationals. We refer to them as Hajis or Durka Durkas or, you know, whatever we want to call them. And, um, you know, I didn't think nothing of it. It's just a military bravado thing. You know, we all do it. And, you know, you, you start your very necessary desensitization process there. Um, every target that we ever shot at in training that like close quarters marksmanship was all you know, Afghan military aged males, Muslim males in traditional dress pointing an AK-47 at me or an RPG or a knife or a suicide vest. Nobody ever was just there with like a smile handing me a bottle of water. You know what I mean? Yep. Um, so it, it gives you the visuals desensitization now, like this plus this is bad. You kill this, right? What they don't tell you is that everybody dresses and looks like that. Right. So everything you see over there is enemy. It's a threat. Um, so, I mean, that started my my overvalued belief system. I've tried to steer away from the term radicalization or deprogram or programming. So overvalued belief system works really well because, you know, I had the, the patriotic, you know, belief system. Um, I remember October 31st, 2008, I lost a very close comrade of mine. We've been through the military from day one till that day. And, uh, you know, the events of the day ended with him having a bullet over his left eye. It came out the back of his head and I was right there with him. Everything was like really right there. Um, there was no time to react. It was something that I still carry with me to this day. And um, you know, that was the first time I ever really experienced a, a hatred that came not from just like a thought or an emotion, but from the pits of my stomach. It yeah. was, it was the most purest form of hatred I had ever experienced. Yeah. Um, I got to experience Islam and Muslims through a very narrow lens as a soldier in the Middle East on combat missions, you don't get to experience the entirety of the culture you get to experience what you're there to experience exactly. and it's never positive yeah. um so i you know when we come home there's this you know culture amongst soldiers that you know we're gonna let you have the opportunity to ask for help 
But when you do ask for help, just know that you're going to go live somewhere for six to eight months. You're going to be in a military hospital. You're going to be going through all these evaluations, mental health checks. You're going to be on medicine. Everybody else is going to be at home. So you got this culture where it's like, you know, you can't ask for help, but you know, you also know what happens when you ask for help. Yep. So you know not to ask for help. Right. Um, so when you come home two weeks later, right, you're left for lack of better choice of words, dazed and confused. You're at home drinking a beer, right? You're sitting on the couch with friends and family that you haven't seen in 15 months. And you have yet to deal with any of the emotional trauma that you've experienced, the physical trauma. So you end up drinking a lot more. You end up turning to drugs and alcohol, which like three months after I come home, I broke my back in a training accident. So that was my introduction to opiate painkillers from a doctor. It wasn't something that I seeked out on my own, um, which it later turned to after the doctor took me off of them. But so that was my introduction to drugs, alcohol, and hatred all right there. Uh, and, you know, me and my friend Mubin, we come up with this reference of, you know, it's like baking muffins, right? You have to have all the ingredients. You have to have the right environment. You have to have all the tools to bake a set of cupcakes. Like, And no matter how small the ingredient seems, it's very necessary. You use a very small amount of baking powder when you mix up a, a batch of batter to make muffins. But right. if you don't have that, they don't turn out right. Right. So I had all the ingredients. Got it. The environment was hostile, in my opinion. I was coming home to an Obama administration where you were forced to be pro-life or pro-choice. You yeah. were um, Republican or Democrat. Right. You were liberal or conservative. Right. You were all lives matter or black lives matter. Like you couldn't just be Chris Buckley from Georgia, right? It's all either or. Yeah. All either or. Yep. There's, it's a very black and white country. And I say that not in terms of race, but right. it is. And it's in terms of, of choice. Like yeah. you were either this or this, they put a, they put us in this box and yeah. you're either a white supremacist or you're Antifa. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yep. So I get it. Fast forward, I come home. My sister-in-law was uh, dating a local drug dealer that I knew that I was purchasing drugs from at the time, and they were biracial. Uh, he was black, she was white, and I don't know, man, it just set me off that night. And I got online, I start Googling, like, how can I protect the white race? Uh, if I'm going to be villainized by the color of my skin without having any input, well, then I'm going to root for the home team, right? I'm going to root for the guys that I see being attacked. And I wasn't the only kid that thought like that, but I was a veteran that made this choice. Uh, And then things got really bad. The drug abuse spiraled out of control. I was using probably, I don't know, maybe what would you say? Probably close to six grams of of crystal meth. Hold on just a second, Chris. So when did Melissa and you get together after Afghanistan? Yeah. And uh, we got together May 21st of 2009. Got it. Okay. And you've lost your friend. Your friend dies in your arms on 2008. Yep. One year. You come home, no way to process any trauma from childhood or from Afghanistan. And you have an injury and you start medicating through hate, alcohol, and methamphetamines and opiates it started with opiates and the opiates progressed into the amphetamines got it i've got it yeah now Um, one one other thing before we keep moving man you've given us a lot so far um but i I wanted to did you did you did i hear you correctly say you like to say overvalued belief system rather than radicalization yeah um because with my line of work with the program that i've created you know, that I put together, it's about language, right? And really, what are these radicalized ideologies about? They're overvalued belief systems. Look at, look at Muslim supremacy. It's overvalued belief system. They take it to the extreme. White supremacy, 
uh, is overvalued belief systems. I mean, even when you look at like cult-like groups and things like Jonesboro and the Moonies and things like that, those are overvalued belief systems that they used to manipulate. So right. it's, a, it's more of a palatable word that, that helps sure. me to be able to do what I do with the military, law enforcement, things of that nature. I'm with you. So now. Can I tack on to that real quick? Yes. Okay. I was just going to say, I think that's so important and something that we've learned from Chris and Parents for Peace is that if we can de-villainize, use terms that aren't villainizing, it allows us to deal with hate and confront hate, um, like from the position of public health, of somebody who needs help, not somebody who's like fundamentally broken and evil. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So I think that term is really awesome because it yeah. does that. We don't have any kind of like ill will or you know notions of somebody with an overvalued belief system and it's a move against dehumanization right so now let me say one more thing before we move forward yeah Um, den just introduced two things that we're going to come back to number one looking at all of this from a public health perspective and the other is she dropped the name Parents for Peace, and we're going to come back to that because that is an organization that I want everybody to visit their website also and that you represent. What happens is I start to, you know, meet this guy. We're talking online, and within a week, I go to a barbecue. A lot of other really familiar faces, you know, uh, white families that have white children, and they are, you know, I, I hadn't. It was my introduction to religion, really, was the religion that I learned from them. And they seem very knowledgeable about the Bible. And really, a lot of them are. Um, But so it just kind of goes hand in hand. You know, they start to talk about the religion and, and, you know, what it really means, you know, the cryptic meanings behind it. Um, And, you know, you start to one of the big passages they use. uh, I don't remember exactly how it goes, but. Uh, and though the beast of the fields will come to your table and, uh, you know, they said, well, who do you think the beast of the fields were? The beast of the fields were the blacks that we put in the fields to work the fields. Why else would they be at our table? And they talk about perverting your daughters and stealing your, you know, um, they talk about, you know, how we knew, how, well, how the Bible describes that Adam was a white man and that he made him in God's image and blah, blah, blah. And it's just like all these really crazy things. When it's the first time you hear about religion and get it broken down like that, I mean, when you're vulnerable and you're and you're you've had that cognitive opening for things to be able to come in and manipulate you, not to mention you're already addicted to drugs and alcohol. They're providing you with more drugs and alcohol to to breed the addiction to the hatred that they're indoctrinating you with. These are very sophisticated people. I rival the recruitment of the KKK and white nationalist groups and Islamic groups and, you know, militant groups out there to any military recruiter that I've ever met. They have a sophistication about them. So Chris, you're on, you're on the internet and here, and you're attracted to these sites. And here are people who are living on these sites, recruiting people who are vulnerable like you into a white nationalism tinged with religion well so the way they offer the way they provided it first like i knew i was going to a kkk meeting right like like i knew that and i think part of the part of the the attraction to it was the mystery to it you know what i mean but i mean you know another thing is you know i was really I was spiraled out of control with my addiction to alcohol and drugs. And I had started to become addicted to this hatred that I had. And I realized that when I got to this, to this barbecue and there was a meth pipe passed to me and plenty of beer, all I could drink. I, I mean, I had just hit the mother load and this was my promised land. It was free drugs, alcohol, women, everything. I, it, it really took me down a dark path. Um, and, you know, on top of that, I felt like I was learning some religion. Yeah. You know? It. Yeah. Uh, so, so, I mean, yeah. So, and, 
we could we could spend a lot of time talking about that. I do think because of our time, we need to kind of begin to turn now yep. where our dear friend Melissa starts asserting herself, right? Or yep. am I am I moving us too fast? No, no, we're we're really right on schedule to that. Uh, you know, right. so this goes on for about two years, three years. Uh, I become more entrenched and more involved in participating. I eventually move up to the second in command um, of the entire loyal white knights of the KKK for the entire United States. I was the head of security and the only person above me was the president or the Imperial wizard for the United States. I'm so sorry, brother. I don't want to insult you, but I thought we were talking about Georgia. Well, it started in Georgia. I went through from, you know, local to state level officer. And then we lost our, our imperial officer. And I was like, yeah, I'll take the spot. And this all happened over the course of like a year. Got it. Okay. Yep. So she had enough one day and I will let her take over from here and, you know, kind of explain where her headspace was at. Whenever me and him first got together, he had just got home. Uh, he got home in March and we got together in May. And I noticed that, you know, he was a heavy drinker. And I felt like, you know, that had something to do with, you know, just coming home and stuff like that. But, you know, my dad was an alcoholic. So whenever I was younger, so I was kind of used to the drinking, but it had gotten worse over time. Um, uh, he had the opioid addiction and stuff like that. You know, he had broken his back and they just took him off. There was no, you know, warning or anything like that. And that caused a lot of issues for him mentally because, you know, here he is depending on this medication for his back and it's no longer there. Yeah. Um, he got out of the military in 2013. Um, he got out and he was like, you know, we was living in uh, Ashland, Kentucky at the time. And we had had my son and he was like, you know, where do you want to move to? And I was like, somewhere it's not cold yeah so we moved to georgia we moved down here and uh, well, I, you said you wanted to be closer to your family well, and yeah. that's why i said and, and i said well fine get let's get stuff ready and we'll, we'll move to georgia right so we moved down here and you know i could i could tell that there was a like he he was empty like there was something missing in him and I felt guilty. I still do to this day because, you know, I kind of felt like I was like, you know, I pushed for him to get out of the military because, you know, we had our son and he was gone all the time. And yeah. I was like, you know, I wish you would put more, you know, being it, being a dad as you do and being Sergeant Buckley, you know, you put more time for the military than you do your child. Yeah. And so he, he exited the military and um we moved whenever we, once we got down here you know he had he had found that other group of friends you right. know he had told me that he had made new friends and stuff like that and I, I didn't really think anything of it because i was like you know he's found these friends and that's whenever i finally later on figure out that there was those friends were his drug buddies yeah and he would use with them yep. um so we spiraled down that, you know, I dealt with the addiction, you know, I, I fought that battle with him and I thought I was done. Little did I know I was not. Um, I didn't know that he was in the clan. I didn't know that he had searched for it um, until later on. And he comes to me and he was like, hey, we're going to go to this family gathering. I had no idea what it was. I had no idea that, he, you know, he had made this outfit for my son. And I have family members that are biracial. So this was really hard for me because my family knew, you know, they was like, you know, he's doing this and here you are supporting him. And I was like, this is a battle that we have to face together. This yeah. is something that we're going to go through together. It's going to get better. I don't know when, but it's going to get better. Um, we went to this gathering and here he is having my three-year-old son, you know, chanting, you know, what CJ says is white powder because he couldn't talk, right. but it was white power. And I was like, you know, it, it, it bothered me, but I couldn't show him that it bothered me because 
he is who I'm supposed to answer to. Yeah. And I hear you. Um, so this is the part that really gets me. Everybody knew him. Everybody knew what he was doing. And they wasn't attacking him. They was attacking me. Yeah. It was, uh, you know, coming at my children. And it come down to the point where me and my eight-month-old daughter, I go to the local Walmart, the local Walmart. I go in to get diaper wipes, come back out, and there's three girls black girls and i and i can't be mad at them i had one coming at me from the side i had one coming at me to the front and i had one coming up behind me i have my child on my hip and they was like we know who you are we know what your husband's doing and we're gonna get you i'm terrified at this point and the whole time this ordeal is going on there is a police officer sitting there yeah he does nothing yeah they know and I was like, look, I said, whatever you guys has got to do, I completely understand. I was like, just please let me take my child home. Yeah. And I was like, and then it's on whatever. I'll, I'll take that. So I get home. I'm, I'm emotional. I, I still get emotional. Um, it's all right, my friend. I hear you. I mean, this is, this is one of the most complicated situations any human being can be in. You with African-American relatives married to and in love with a leader of the KKK being attacked by people of color because of what your husband's doing and you are torn deep, deep, deeply. Yeah. So I get so home. What do you do? I get home and I'm furious at this point. I'm not mad that they're mad. I'm right. mad at him. And I was like, you know what? I said, I go in and I have it set to my mind that I'm leaving. Yeah. I'm taking my kids and I'm leaving. Yep. And I go in and I was like, look, I said, it's the clan or your family. Got it. And I was like, I'm taking my kids and I'm going to leave Got because it. now they're coming at me and they're coming at my kids. Yeah. And here it is. My son is supposed to start school and I don't want my son to go to school and say the N word because he wasn't raised that way i mean he was but i didn't raise him to be that way he idolized his daddy and everything that his daddy did he was gonna do because he loved his daddy that much so i told him i was like you know i'm done i can't do this anymore you need to make the decision well didn't work that way got it this is what he wanted this is what he was going to continue to do and i was i was at a loss I had no idea what I was going to do. Right. Without him being there, he went out to hang out with his friends yep. all hours of the night um, with the battle of methamphetamines. You know, yep. I was raising two kids on my own. Yep. Um, a night had come up that I was sitting there and I was like, you know, who knows? Let's ask Google. Ask Google anything and you'll get an answer. Wow. Um, I was sitting there and I was like, how do you get a loved one out of a hate group? That was what you Googled? I said, how to get a loved one out of a hate group. Had no idea yes, what I was going to do. Um, the first name that come up was Arno Michaelis. Wow. Um, Which, my friends, you're going to hear a lot more about Arno, um, um, but here, here we go. Here's the so turn. Story, and I was like, you know, let's just go for the win here and shoot this guy an email. You know, That's he's a lot do. like Chris. Um, I don't know if this is going to work, but you can't play. You can't win the lottery if you don't try. Wow. So. I sent him an email and I was like, you know, I told him what was going on. And I was like, look, I can, I completely understand if you can't help, but I want to try. Um, I never expected anything back. And about a week went by and I was, you know, going through my email and I see a reply wow. from Arno Michaelis. Wow. 
and he says, I'm coming in to your area. We can't let him know that I'm coming. Wow. And I was raised to where a woman doesn't step out on her spouse. Yeah. You know, you yep. keep, you keep things, you talk things over together. You don't hide nothing from one another. You don't go to bed angry with one another. You fight a battle together because you are one. Right. So here it is. I'm feeling like horrible guilt because I've went completely behind his back. I've talked to another man behind his back. Never meeting this man before in my life. I got, I tell Chris, I've got to go to the grocery store. No. I go to meet Arno to bring Arno to her home um, that I've never spoke to Chris about. And <laughs> what a risk. Uh, Arno stands like uh, six, six something. We've got a little five, seven, five, six, Chris. Uh, he weighs I about am five, eight, ma'am. Okay. <laughs> he weighs about five, eight. 109 pounds soaking wet. I was I was on that dope hard, man. I weighed I nothing. I hear you, brother. I hear and it. here comes Arno. I mean, he sees the other vehicle pull in. He didn't think anything of it. So here comes this 6'2 man crawling out of the vehicle with this extremely deep voice. And he's like, what's up, brother? And Chris is like, who the bleep, 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 bleep is this? Right. And I was like, you wouldn't do it, so I had to. I had to get help, Melissa. And it was a battle from that point on. He was not <laughs> given in, but Arno was not given up. Wow! This is, it, you, you see what happens when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object. Uh, <laughs> I'll keep the details of that, you know, pretty brief. But um, you know, it was it was the day of reckoning, you know, and I mean. Arno didn't attack my belief systems right off the bat. The first thing he said to me is, we've got to get you sober, brother. Wow. And that was something that I could get behind. Wow. And, you know, the rest just kind of, you know, was the same process. Very tooth and nail, uh, clawing your way. And, you know, it was, it was definitely a battle. It was a journey. So we're going to have to fast forward. Let's get to a moment where you have really gone beyond a point of no return. Something about this relationship that Melissa has instigated that Arno starts with you. What does Arno say, mean, do that registers in your soul? that turns you that begins to turn you around um of all he put you in touch with that me. was that was way yeah, later way after. um i think that it wasn't one thing it right. was a combination of things like there was the you know unconditional compassion wow you know um, Woo, wait a minute let me breathe deep unconditional compassion i know it's a mouthful um but it was never an attack on me um there were times when i tried to create a conflict so that i could make a quick exit uh but it arno never let it work he would always back away and reach out to me again and we would continue the journey uh, another one of the things that really um was effective was he helped me to confront my ideology. Uh, he didn't make me do it alone. Uh, we did it together. I'm hearing you. Yep. I just had to take a moment there. <laughs> I love um, it. I, we have to take moments like this when we're, when we're working at these depths. Yeah. Um, the depth of the soul here. You know, I mean, one of the ways that Arno helped me to confront the ideology that, you know, it was all white people that were suffering uh, from these, you know, things that were going on because of, you know, this race or that religion. 
uh, like he flew me all the way to LA to the midnight mission and we served the homeless. And at the end of that, he asked me, he said, how many white people did you count there, Chris? Wow. And, um, he drove you from Georgia. No, we, he, we flew, we got on a plane, we flew to LA. Uh, and then, you know, earlier that day, he took me to meet father Greg Boyle. No uh, he's one of my buddies and uh oh we sat God. and we had a long talk with uh hector verugo from homeboy oh industries Lord, these are my friends yeah and uh you know i remember um <clears throat> oh, i've never God. told anybody this so uh i i remember that you know hector looked at uh arno and he said hey give us a minute man and uh hector's this really generous compassionate hispanic gentleman and uh, i remember when arno left the room he looked over at me and he said chris what do you want what are you doing here and i just i told him i wanted peace and i remember i broke down in his in his office there and uh that was the moment that i knew that the kkk was behind me i was sober-minded i was sober-hearted and I knew what I had to do as a man. And me and Arno had a really long talk that night. And um, I remember I told him that I was scared because I had to face all of this that I had created. And, uh, you know, he promised me that we wouldn't deal with the, the Muslim thing because I told him, I said, that is off the table. Um, but it's the small victories. And um, this, just let me introduce, this is a hatred of Muslim people that had been hatched when you were in Afghanistan. Yeah. That you were carrying forward. And no doubt it was somebody who was Muslim who had killed your friend who mm -hmm. died in your arms in 2008. Yeah. And so we're not touching that hatred yet. No, no, we're getting ready to. Uh, so uh, that literally happened on like a Tuesday at nine o'clock at our Airbnb at night. Wednesday at noon, he's like, hey, man, I got something extra special planned for this evening. Uh, I'm going to introduce you to one of my friends. And his name is Mubin. And I was like, no. So we we knuckle butted heads all day about that and uh mubin's really knowledgeable about the quran and and you know the ideology and i remember that we had this zoom call and like i just asked the questions that i'd been indoctrinated with you know and he explained them all to me about you know what the religion is um you know the second book of the quran and and the the ability to lie to deceive your enemies and that their main goal is to convert the world and you know all these really false narratives that that i had you know taken on and um so i walked away from that conversation very dangerous because now i had been enlightened and we know that the the, the number one cure for ignorance is education right so about a about a couple months goes by and uh i think we were it was right at it was just starting to get warm so it was probably right after christmas like in early spring uh arno calls me he's like hey man uh i want you to talk to my friend man uh his name's dr kelly sounds super white right and uh yeah, so I was like, Arno, God Almighty. Good yeah, so, so now, like, even though we agreed to leave the Muslim thing off the table, like, he's now, he's walking me into, like, this confrontation of my, my belief system. Sure. So I remember I found out that Dr. Kelly's first name was Haval, and I was like, son of a boy, you know? So we, we go back and forth with text for a while, and finally we have a phone call. And I remember our first phone call was like an hour and a half rant about gun control. Wow. Right. And, um, you know, he called me back again after that. And then we just started talking and, you know, things hit off. I found out that he came to the United States 
about the same time I was going to Afghanistan. Wow. We both are the same age. Wow. Um, now we both have kids. Wow. So, um, you know, he they just secretly had a bromance going on. These <laughs> two talked more than he talked to me. <laughs> hey, listen, listen, for the record, I was still kind of upset about the whole going behind my back to Arno thing years <laughs> later. I'm just saying, like, I hold a grudge, but you know, um. But yeah, so all right, pause just a second. All right, Din and Aaron, I'm getting to watch your faces. Just (laughs) say one or two words right now about what's going on with you all because you all have known Melissa and Chris for years. So Din, what what's going through your mind or your heart right now? I mean, I'm just like delighted to see you both. And uh I mean we're we're towards the end of editing and hearing how you describe your journey Chris and Melissa like fills Aaron and and me with like so much joy of like we got it right like hearing you talk about your story tonight makes us feel like really good about the film and uh, we literally just texted sorry we were saying I can't wait for them to see it because I think they're really gonna um really gonna love it so that's what was going through my head (laughs) well we've had a lot of practice over the years telling our story Aaron, what's going on in your mind and heart right now? I mean, to be honest, I just think it's hilarious every time Chris spits. <laughs> <laughs> I just love that he's like so real and authentic. And, you know, like he is just, you got to be yourself and he's himself. <laughs> and the himself he is now versus the himself he was when we met, yeah. you know, a few years ago is just, it's incredible. Um, like his heart, I've gotten to see his heart change and, you know, cause he had come a really long way before we met him, but he has come so far since we met him. And I'm just really glad that, that you actually called Melissa out on being the hero of the story. Cause she really is. So. Oh, definitely, man. Um, I, I have wrote several letters to Marvel about making a superhero about her in the MCU. <laughs> Um, okay, brother Chris, we got to wrap this up now, but, yeah. but, but there's a lot to say now. Yeah. So you're having these long conversations with this dude named Haval. Yeah. Muslim. Well, this dude is now my brother. So uh, we'll call him my brother Haval. Um, you know, and uh, we realized, it, I realized um, that we were not so unlike each other as I would have thought. Um, we both had an extreme love for the United States of America. Yep. Uh, we both had a passion to help other people. Yep. Um, and we were very family oriented and dedicated to our communities. Yep. Um, when Haval and me met, I had been volunteering at a place, a uh, local uh, you know, just like a drug rehab type volunteer place that later turned out to be a cult. Um, but, uh, you know, it was one of those things that it was a way for me to serve. Right. And, uh, so I remember me and Aval got together and we started going and traveling and doing and speaking engagements and we would talk together and it was really powerful. And I remembered seeing just how like, he had this amazing platform that he could use. He was a doctor, you know, he, he was successful. And um, I remember one night, I think it was in Charleston, or no, it was North Carolina, Charlotte, North Carolina, um, uh, Chapel Hill, University of North Carolina, actually. And uh, we were coming home and I remember I asked him, I was like, dude, you've got all this platform to be able to change the world, man. Like, what can I do? Like, I know how to be a soldier, and there's not a very high demand out there in the the society for somebody who can shoot, move, and communicate. I don't want to be a cop, right? And I know how to be a drug addict. And he was like, well, use what you know. And that kind of just spitballed, man. And and I remember I read a book by Russell Brand uh, about how he dissected the 12 steps and really elaborated what they meant to him in his recovery. And, um, you know, I want to throw like a lot of shout out to Russell Brand for giving me the, the motivation 
behind the ideas that Dr. Kelly gave me. Yep. You know, so I sat down and I was like, I remember I asked him, I was like, if I could have been so addicted to drugs and alcohol, is it possible that I was addicted to the high that I got from hate and violence and extremism? And, you know, to hear a doctor and, you know, somebody with his knowledge say, yeah, I think so. That just, that, that was like pulling the rubber band back and letting it go. And like, from that point on, it's just been, you know, I sat down and I created a 12 step program for hate and extremism. Um, we lost the copyright on the name because we didn't copyright it in time before we talked about it in public and somebody stole that. So um, we're now calling it TRP, which is uh, trauma recovery program. Um, and it's basically a moral cognizant inward journey on how to identify, isolate and recover from the traumas that we sustain and build a healthy foundation via spirituality, um, accountability, and compassion. So I took all the things that were given to me, uh, these priceless gifts that I didn't deserve, that people gave to me, and I put them in one place. And that's how I am giving back to be able to help people who are similar in my situation. Chris, I am got to just deep breathe deep. Oh my Lord, I'm having a glory attack. This was the moment for uh, for me, myself, to really know that he was done. He gave Arno his patch. Yep. Well, let's explain I, what the patch is. Um, the patch is the patch that they receive when he got his position as the Nighthawk for the state of Georgia and the, the security for the United States area. Um, for the KKK. That, yes, for the KKK. That patch was like the American flag patch on the on the U.S. uniform. Um, that patch meant a lot to him. And the moment I seen him, you know, dismember that patch from that, what are they called? From that robe. From the robe and place that patch into Arno's hands. Arno's face was like, it. it's working. It's done. And he come over to me. He goes... It's been a battle, um, but he's okay. And he goes, and now you can, now you're okay. He goes, you did your job. Wow. Chris, how long was that in after you met Arno for the first time? I think it was a year. Wow. I mean, like it was, it was, you know, it was a long time. And uh, I remember that I told Arno, that I was like, I'm done, man, I'm done. And he said, I need you to prove it to me. Wow. And like the only way I knew to prove it to him was to, to willfully hand him that patch. And wow. they burned the robe together. Burned the robe together? Yep. Oh my Lord. Oh y'all, this is just amazing. And Arno to this day still has that patch. This is just amazing. Now, there is a lot of, to this story and the way everybody y'all who are watching this this morning, the way you get the story is to see the documentary Clarkston, which comes out in the fall of 2021. It's not out yet. And I just want to throw out there that uh, anybody from the St. Luke's uh, family that wants to send a postcard, I would be happy to sign that with Melissa and send it back to the church parishioners uh, so that everybody can have their own little piece of the Clarkston journey um, and carry it with us, you oh, know. I and love that. I love that. Um, and, and, and so there's, so everybody, I know we've got to end. Clarkston, the documentary, Clarkston. Number two, Parents for Peace website. Parentsforpeace.org. Say, say that again, Chris. It's, it's .org, not .com. Parentsforpeace.org. Thank you, parentsforpeace.org you hear more in-depth from Chris. You get to read this amazing op-ed piece he did for CNN. You also get introduced to Arno and Haval, whom I'm hoping that we can bring to this forum, God willing, inshallah. And, <laughs> and, 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 we're not going to stop this journey. 
we are on a journey. You can feel Chris and Melissa's energy. You can feel Den and Aaron's energy. You can feel my energy. And you hear the power of unconditional compassion. And the walking witness to unconditional compassion is Greg Boyle, one of my dearest friends from Los Angeles. We'll try to get him on um, here. We are on a journey, my friends. We are on a journey. So at this point, we have to stop and we have to thank. So first, Den and Aaron, thank you for connecting us at St. Luke's to Chris and Melissa. Thank you for getting them on to NBC, Lester Holt. And I saw them. He did that, not us. Oh, wow. They <laughs> did that? Yeah, that was all and Chris, Parents for Peace. Parents for, Peace. <laughs> Parents for Peace did that. And then that got him into my sermon two weeks ago. And here we are. My God, the Holy Spirit is a choreographer of extreme, delightful cosmic dances. And <laughs> thank you, too. And then Chris and Melissa, I cannot tell you how grateful on behalf of St. Luke's and all the people who watch St. Luke's, we are to you for your lives, for your story, for your commitment, for your energy, for your being together, for your marriage, and for being such wonderful parents to that beautiful son and daughter of yours. So thank you very much. You are our newest best friends, and we are best friends at the level of the soul and we will stay together forever. Right, Chris and Melissa? Absolutely. I, I couldn't have said it better myself. And, and it's just been so pleasant to, to have the conversation and open the dialogue. Um, and, you know, if anybody from the church has any questions and, you know, wants to dig deeper, you know, I'm, I'm very accessible and open uh, to talk about it a little deeper and, and help them in, in any way they need. Very good. Now, let me tell you about my people. They are hugging people. And they like to get together. So they're just dying for this pandemic to get over. And they're going to want you to come to St. Luke's so that they can love on you and applaud you and let you feel their energy and their love. So well, on that note, I'll say that, uh, you know, we're we're getting ready to schedule our uh, our COVID backs um, and, you know, wait for this COVID thing to get over. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure Haval would be happy to hear me say that, you know, we have to be safe before we be affectionate, but uh, I've got a suit in the closet that I'm just dying to put on and travel again. So I can't wait. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Hopefully, uh, hopefully this time next year, we'll be planning uh, our Ramadan iftar dinner and we can uh, be with our, our, you know, very diverse family in Clarkston and, you know, be passing the blessings of Eid Mubarak on and uh you know inshallah 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 thank y'all bless you very much Absolutely. and thank you thank you and thank you everybody who watched us today we're going to continue this journey and we're going to continue this conversation and it's not gonna stop god bless have a great week bye-bye